0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Experiment, a Freedom Center Church podcast. Welcome back to the Lighthouse Experiment Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. This week, we're so incredibly grateful to welcome Sergeant Michael Suguru from out in California, and then as well as, of course, Chaplain Jim Parkin and myself, Ashley Chandler. So welcome back, everybody.
1: What's up? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. you know, we've just recently been trying to branch out and get get guests that aren't, like, from our immediate area, you know, and just get some more perspective and kind of uh, open the conversation. Obviously, you know I, I follow what you're doing on social media, and have been both intrigued and heartbroken by how the numbers of law enforcement suicide just keeps, you know, like day to day. I think there was a in October, and and I think like a week's time frame, it was like the numbers increased by three, and then like by five, and it was it's just, you know, it's tragic. But we're, what we're trying to do here is just be part of that conversation and making people aware that this is this is an industry where this is an epidemic that's happening, and we just need to keep
2: talking about it and making Absolutely. people aware. And it takes teamwork in this fight, so we all need to get together and you know talk about it and share our stories and show people that they're not alone, because there's a all lot right. of brothers and sisters out there suffering in silence, and they think that... They're different, something's wrong with them, and in reality, it's normal and the trauma that we see day in and day out, you know, regardless of whether you're a firefighter, paramedic dispatcher, police officer um it's it's just trauma after trauma after trauma, and it truly takes a toll you know on our mental health, our physical health, on our families, our loved ones and it's it's affecting a lot of people, yeah absolutely,
0: yeah, I'll say it's definitely. Been extremely encouraging to find more and more organizations and people that are um, writing books, doing speaking engagements, starting organizations, um, providing more resources and stuff. So it's just, it's really neat even for us to just see, like you said, that there is such a community of people that are not only in it, but are really fighting for each other to be a stronger community, a stronger support system and stuff. Um, you know, Jim's working on some stuff within his own agency here and MMR, their team is um, doing more stuff for their folks in their agency. And then just other things that he's got on the pipeline, hopefully coming soon to just become more of a resource and stuff. So um, take a little bit, um, Michael, and share about kind of who you are and what you do and, and what you're doing right now.
2: Well, I'll try to keep it as, as brief as I can, but I'm uh, originally from the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California, and I come from a law enforcement family. So my stepfather, uh, who came into my life very early, he was in law enforcement, and because of him, he he literally was my role model, he was my That's mentor, funny. he was my hero, and I really, truly looked up to him. And at the age of eight years old, I actually was a police volunteer for the Sausalito Police Department. And that's where actually I first got the bug or the desire to kind of see what this was all about. And it really was hooked from day one. And kind of fast forward in high school, I was a police explorer for the Richmond Police Department where he then worked out. You know, I went to high school, college. Um, I looked into scholarships and I actually got a full scholarship through the Air Force, through the Air Force ROTC program. And I studied criminal justice. And so when I graduated from college in 98, um, I had a commitment to the military, which was four years. So I went into the Air Force as a second lieutenant and I got security forces, which was my number one career choice. And that's basically military police, um, air base ground defense, anti-terrorism, nuclear security, foreign airfield assessments. There's a whole bunch of different things that we do, but it's basically the law enforcement and infantry of the United States Air Force. And like I said, my original plan was just to do four years and get out and then go into the FBI. Um, But a bunch of things happened. I was stationed all over the U.S. Um, Eventually, um, during 9-11, I was actually in Germany. And shortly after that, I was in the Middle East, eventually in South America And I ended up extending my time to about six and a half years active duty. I ended up coming back to California in 2004, and I was the chief of security forces at Travis Air Force Base. And I was also Phoenix Raven, which is a subset of security forces members. It's a program that started after 9-11. And I immediately transitioned in civilian law enforcement as opposed to federal law enforcement. I got hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department, which is here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, it's very close to Oakland and San Francisco. And, you know, I, I started out like all officers do in training. Uh, within a year and a half, I was actually a training officer. I was training other police officers. Cool. And then I was a detective. Um, I was also undercover for two years on a California State Drug Task Force, where we focused on mid to high level drug dealers, um, had some cartel cases, eventually got promoted to patrol sergeant. And also a public information officer as an additional duty. And my kind of story of where I'm at today started with a very traumatic incident as a brand new sergeant. So I'd been a civilian police officer for eight years. Literally, it was two weeks on as a patrol sergeant. Night after Christmas, very tragic event happened. And that event really changed my path. It changed my trajectory and it set off a series of events dealing with post-traumatic stress injury. I like to call it injury versus disorder for a lot of reasons, and, and yeah. we can go into that in a few minutes. But um, to make a long story short, you know, because of the stigma and the culture, when I was suffering, I didn't ask for help because I was embarrassed, I was ashamed, and I turned to things like alcohol, You know, I was isolating, distancing mm-hmm. myself from family, friends, literally just suffering and and felt like there was no one to talk to until it got to a breaking point where i didn't want to be here anymore and i literally wanted to die on duty Um, and there was another tragic incident which i go into great detail about all these in my new book but a really good friend of mine tried to kill himself when i was on duty and that incident actually ended up saving my life and gave me the strength and courage to ask for help and i ended up medically retiring in 2018 because of post-traumatic stress injury. And okay. and now I'm on a path of speaking across the nation on really just, you know, changing the culture and smashing the stigma and showing people that you're not alone. Uh, more importantly, there is help. There is hope. And I'm living proof that you can come out the other side and actually have an amazing life. Right on.
1: That's cool. Very cool. Yeah. You know, it's, it's
2: interesting too. Cause
1: like I said earlier, I'm, um, I'm way older than most of this, my colleagues at this point, you know, and it's when we talk about that stigma of not even wanting to talk about stuff. And, and, you know, so I had worked with one company in our local area, Swartz Ambulance Service. It's kind of, we have this dynamic in Genesee County where I think currently there's five different private companies. So it's, it's like that old school kind of competing for space, competing for, you know, for, uh, it's almost like if you think about the early nineties gangs, like we're competing over territory all the time, but I worked with one agency like up and through COVID. And so for me, I had seen a lot of things, seen a lot of things in the military. I was in the army, you know, you know, a little. I like to say micro traumas when it's not like a major event, but you know what I mean. It's the little, little things, and they keep stacking up and stacking up and stacking up. And so, in, in my career, COVID was the, the time, and it wasn't even until like after we were coming through the other side yeah. that I realized that that had really, really worked me over. You know, and uh, and it was not so much act like the sickness part of it or the calls, but kind of the extra noise the outside opinions and people that I love and trust tell me that I was being too emotional and that, you know, something you really probably don't want to tell a paramedic in a high volume system that I work in is that people die every day because yeah, you know, they absolutely do. But so that coming through that stress, and then finally I end up shifting and transitioning to this, to MMR at a different agency and kind of the, Long story short, early on at MMR, we had a situation where a resident physician at one of our local hospitals, and this will tie in because we talk about first responders and stuff like that and, and all these different groups and their high suicide rate. Until this day, I didn't know the level at which residents or docs, when they're in their residency, will attempt suicide or be successful. So this young gentleman Got a he's a insurgent, like a resident surgeon. So he had a, got a scalpel. Obviously he would have access. And then he cut his brachial artery sitting in his car outside the hospital. Well, his buddies found him and they, they call. I was just happened to be at the, at that ER wrapping up on a call. So I got to help this dude. But that was one of those situations where I've seen, responded to, been involved with people who have attempted suicide at this you know just tons of times but that really affected me so when our crews when younger dudes than me ask if i was okay and i'm like the old dude i've been around i've seen the thing and i'm like nope you know it was interesting but it was almost it gave them like the license to start talking about this stuff that they've been going through recently you know and it was super interesting to me that, that that's the kind of thing it takes that kind of the, uh, well, not kind of like the literal lead by example, yeah. you know, I've, I've been here, I've been doing the thing and now we're going to talk about it, you know, and to me, that's, I think that's how it should be. I don't embarrass very easy, you know? So I think that in kind of, in my opinion, in this, In this discussion and stuff like that, I think something we should strive for is mental fitness and kind of be proactive as people are coming into the industry rather than reactive, you know, after years of trauma.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree with that statement more. And I go into detail about that in my book and even suggesting solutions for this because, you know, you have to address the the new first responders coming in, but you also have to address the ones like yourself that have been working many years, in some cases, many decades. And and we need leaders at all levels to set the example by truly just being open and vulnerable and being honest about things. Because so many times as first responders, and I can speak for myself that I had this image of perfection that I always wanted to portray on the outside and show people that, you know, I didn't make mistakes, nothing phased me. Um, you know, I wasn't scared of anything and I would always get the job done. And the reality is is that being normal is talking about feelings, emotions, and how things affect us. And we don't need to make a big ordeal about it every time. If we make it the culture and we address it as it's happening, then you can get through a full career, you know, whether that's 20 or 30 years now in some cases and come out healthy on the other side. But what we're doing is these daily traumas, which in our careers end up to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents. In some cases, that number is over 500 traumatic incidents in a career where, you know, is the average person, they may have one or two in a lifetime. I mean, some have none, but some people one or two. And so, like I said, let's just normalize it. Let's not make this a big deal. Let's lead by example. And make it part of the culture. Make it part of our debriefings or our routines or our procedures, and so that we don't even think about it. It just becomes commonplace, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. Jim and I have a mutual friend, um, Tammy Cromer, who runs uh, Claire's Hope. It's a uh, organization, a nonprofit that supports adaptive and foster care families here in Genesee County and around Michigan, um, and she's something I heard from her a few weeks ago is that she just calling it and modeling it for her kids. She um, has six kids and then she's her and her husband have done a lot of foster care and just being able to say it, like being in the car driving to whatever family event and being able to say out loud, you know, I'm kind of anxious about going to this event. I'm anxious about this and just being able to say it like we're still going, but I'm letting the other people around me into what's going on with me and so now there's a, like a shared experience with that. Now I know what's going on with you. So I can be better aware of what you're experiencing in the moment and to support you. And maybe that looks, now that I know my friend or I know my family member a little bit more, I know I can learn and know how better to support somebody as they're navigating a moment, a day, an event, whatever that might look like. And sometimes it's just as simple as being able to say, I'm feeling this today. I'm still going to work. I'm still doing the thing, but this is how I'm feeling. This kind of whatever I'm experiencing. So that's been something just even in our own family and the stuff that we've navigated over the last few years to just, instead of just keeping it here, being able to just verbalize it and maybe it doesn't change any, any of the situation directly right then in that moment, but it changes my, whether I'm hiding from it and trying to shove it down or whether I'm just being honest and authentic with Um, my friends or family with what's going on with me that day is just, it's been a big deal for my family directly right now. Just, just doing a lot of that stuff. So,
2: and that's huge because, and this is one of the biggest mistakes I made at the very onset of my first responder career is that I told myself I would never bring the job home. I would be protecting my family by not telling them about the things I do and the things I see. But what ended up happening was when I came home, you know, pissed off in her bad mood, My family thought it was them. They didn't know it was that crappy day that I had, you know, that horrific incident I went to. And that goes into exactly what you're talking about, which is the communication. And if, you know, instead I would have come home and said, look, I'm really sorry, but I went to a really bad car accident today and I just need like a half hour to decompress. Let me go take a shower. I'll be back down and we can talk. And again, I'm not going to go into graphic detail, but I'm going to let them know, hey, this is what happened. Here's what what's affecting me and be clear that look it's not you 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 guys are my solution you're not the problem but if we don't do that our family members blame themselves and right. they think they're the problem and this led to my marriage ending I mean this had a, a devastating effect because when it got to the point where I I needed to talk about this stuff it was too late because I hadn't opened up about it literally for years and years mm-hmm. and now it was too late so you know, my point is start today. It's never too late to start talking about this. Don't keep it inside. Bring your family members and loved ones in because that's who matters. That's your support system. The profession, it's a job. Mm-hmm. Your family and loved ones are the, are the really what matters most, not the job, not the career. Absolutely.
1: That's yeah, interesting too. Yeah. Cause like, so my wife has always known me as a paramedic, like the whole time I've always been, but, and, And she's very, very mentally tough and strong and and understands what we're doing and understands the risk and is very much during a shift or or that kind of thing. But I can tell you, like, I'm not a superstitious guy by any stretch. But if I were (laughs) like when when COVID really started hitting, she actually said, hey, I need to do all the things I need to take all the steps because I don't want you to die. And I've been in situations prior to COVID where I've had dudes draw down on me because they were, you know, in a mental health crisis themselves and scared. And it was kind of a scenario like speaking to a law enforcement guy, it would kind of be a scenario where a lot of times in our area, because of lack of police staffing, as terrible as this is going to sound, they'll be like, go ahead, approach with caution, advise if you need PD.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we both know that. If I'm advising that I need PD, I'm, I'm already
0: probably already way behind kind of, yeah.
1: the power curve. So, but, you know, situations had happened and that was the only time. It was the first time she verbalized that she was scared, you know, so that was a big deal. But the fact that she can, that she could, that she understands by like the look in my eye when I come in the door, you know, it's been, that has been like really a, a saving grace to my career. That's been a the the fact that I can share those things or not. And she knows the questions to ask and the ones to not ask and and you know but but that's absolutely correct. And for our younger listeners, our single listeners, our newly married listeners, like this is a big like this is a big teaching moment of this episode. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah and I and I would say just from somebody on the opposite end of it, it it can also feel like you're being pushed out. You know, like I, I know you're having a rough time. I know you're upset. I know you're angry, but you're not talking about it. And sometimes you don't want to talk about it. Sometimes you need the walk with your dog. Sometimes you need the shower. Sometimes, you know, whatever it is. So understanding that not to take it personal, that my friend or husband or whoever doesn't necessarily have to talk about it all the time, but that when they do, then I'm somebody that's trusted and that I'm not so breakable that I can be trusted with some of that, that hard stuff and, and be there in the way that I can be there is, is pretty powerful too. So to be able to draw people in a bit um, instead of feeling so pushed out, I know that from my experience, it's kind of been how I've perceived, you know, somebody that I care about going through a a rough go, you know,
2: Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing that we haven't mentioned that I do want to mention um, I experienced a lot of admin betrayal or administrative betrayal. And, Mm. you know, in the beginning of my career, I really thought that it was my family, you know, it wasn't a public entity. It wasn't a job, but it was my calling. This was a family. They're always going to have my back. And, You know, there came a point where my own agency literally turned their back on me when I, and and you have to keep this in mind that it's a job and you're going to do it for a set period of time. But, you know, when you come home, be present, be there. Because when I was home, I was physically there, but I wasn't mentally present. I wasn't emotionally present. And I was so focused on the next promotion or the next assignment or, you know, the next additional duty that. That became more important than my family. And and thank goodness I retired because now my family, my daughter, is my sole focus. She's my number one focus. And I'm able to make up for some of that lost time. But I know there's a lot of first responders that are out there listening to this right now who need to take a look inside themselves and and say, you know, this overtime that I'm constantly signing up for, even though I'm still working 12-hour shifts, you know, and I'm working 60, 80 hour work weeks. Well, what about the family? What about the loved ones? You know, that over time, I understand we have to pay bills and we have to make a living, but, you know, toys are not as important as the family. The family is what is most important. And I just, Absolutely. I really want to emphasize this and repeat it over and over and over again, because at the end of the day, when you come home after that crappy call, that traumatic incident, they're the ones that can be there. If you let them, if you let them right. in, but if you don't like I did, if you shut them out and you push them away, eventually they're not going to come back. Right.
1: That's a big deal too, man. Cause I see, we see that all the time, right? We have, you know, in, in the EMS community, we have all these kids that came in and they got their license and they went right into a pandemic. And then it's like, really have had nothing in their life that would suggest any type of trauma, nine out of 10 times. And now they're in the middle of this. And now we push through the other side and they're working 96 hours a week. They're working. I
0: can't even imagine.
1: Like we do 12 hour shifts. So like my work week starts tomorrow, ends on Saturday. I work 7.30 AM to 7.30 PM and barring late calls and whatever, not a second more. Right but some of these kids will come in here, man, and they'll work. There's no base. There's no getting out of the truck and they'll work 36 straight hours and they're miserable and they're broken and they're having all these struggles. And then they do have a couple of days off and they spend that whole time like eyeballs deep in a bottle or whatever the case may be just trying to sleep or do whatever, you know, and it's, pay for you know ems is not great really it's not and but you also know that going into it like they were crystal clear when i went through my emt and paramedic program that there would be no fame or fortune doing this you know but i I really feel and i try to impress upon these kids but i really feel bad for them because they're working so much and it's just it is the hours they put in And in this culture of overtime and all that, the amount that they're working is literally like pouring kerosene on an already, you know, burnt out psyche on an already emotionally spent, like we said, trauma after trauma, after trauma, not taking any time at all to deal with it and just, just pouring fuel on flames and, and, Still young enough to not understand what's happening to them,
2: you know. Uh, Absolutely, and you—you actually mentioned something I want to address. It—I don't think most people probably caught it. I did because I was guilty of this. But I'm going to argue a point here, and I'm going to say that actually most first responders have some form of childhood trauma, and it can be very minor end of scale, or it can be very serious. And I was in denial of this, but and let me just kind of talk about this for a second. But we at a very young age, we become very good at overcoming adversity, being resilient, yeah. being decision makers, um, adapting and overcoming. And in my case, I had a father who was an alcoholic, a drug user later, he was distant in my life. And I, I didn't realize the effect of this. I was actually in denial of it. I, I created this perfect life for myself. I became a first responder. And I didn't realize that I actually had a fear of abandonment, which was all the way back to childhood. And I didn't realize the effect of that until my new family, my blue family turned their back on me and it brought that all back up. And so, you know, that's the minor end of the scale. Right. But I, in my volunteer work, I am a peer volunteer for the West coast post trauma retreat. I speak all across the nation. I've been to save a warrior. I'm an ambassador for them. And I've met a lot of first responders. And like I said, Some, it's very minor, and it could be an emotionally distant parent. It could be a parent that's always working and is not home when you need them. Or it could be on the other end of the spectrum, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And it's Mm -hmm. something that we don't talk about and we don't address. And the reason why I want to bring this up is, is because we push that away. We become professionals, first responders. And actually, that childhood trauma makes us very good and successful at what we do. And it doesn't come to that breaking point where you're pushed over the edge. And the thing is, you need to separate these things eventually and address them. You know, you need to address the childhood trauma. You need to address the trauma. You need to address the admin betrayal. And in my case, I addressed my work trauma for a couple of years when I started my recovery. But I still was in denial about my childhood trauma. And it wasn't until I went to Save a Warrior, which is a free program for all first responders or military veterans or active military, and that program changed my life because it focused on complex post-traumatic stress. And like I said, that's when you have the childhood trauma and you take the work trauma and you put it on top of that. And they peel that away and address the childhood trauma. And that's, that was that final piece that I needed in my recovery. And I know there's people out there listening right now that say, I don't want to talk about my childhood. They haven't shared it with anybody. They pushed it so far away that they think it doesn't affect them. Well, guess what? It does affect you and you're not realizing how much it is day to day.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. All that information is it's it's what you built your life around. It's what you like. um, I've been having to do a lot more training on trauma in the past year on my work for a nonprofit that does preventative education for sex trafficking. And we're opening a safe house for minors who have been trafficked that will provide the full wraparound restorative care. And, oh man, there's so much development about what we know about ourselves, how we see the world, how we see everything. And all of that is built in those early years. And it's from, and this is just speaking from my husband and I and what, you know, our life experiences, how do you, it is so complex and how do you go back to stuff that was so, and you just want to go forward. I want to move on. I don't want to deal with that stuff anymore. I'm done being upset, having it affect everything. So um, that's really good that you mentioned that and talk yeah. about that because I think that there's a ton of, I mean, and just the staggering numbers of how many adults are walking around with trauma that they don't even know what to do with, they feel stuck in, or it's just, it's just too complex and hard to even kind of, how do you, it's not a broken leg that I go to PT three times a week and do this, you know, scheduled, you know, care for it. It's, it, it's a lot more complex than that. So no, that's really good. Cause that's a lot of stuff that, um, my husband and I have had to walk through. Um, Nick went through, a really bad year of anxiety depression um to the point where it was hard for him to get out of the house get out of bed and a lot of it was just finally coming face to face with a lot of stuff that he'd just kind of been turning away from for so long cuz it was just you know there's nothing i can do about it there's nothing i can do about it now you know it's all in the past type thing so i'm glad that you said that you know and that you talked about that
1: well so. that and how many how many people get into law enforcement or the fire service or EMS or emergency medicine or nursing because of an experience. Yeah. You know, yeah. How many times do you hear the story of my mom had cancer and she died when I was whatever young age. So I went into nursing Yeah. or I had this experience. So I became a firefighter. I had this experience or saw this experience. So I became a cop and it's, so that's yeah that's,
0: well, it's wonderful to like celebrate those experiences in a weird way. You know, it is a part of what shaped me and shaped, um, you know, a lot of my hardships and experiences that I've been through. I certainly don't want to live through them again, but I'm grateful for how they have shaped how I see people, how I see see life, how I'm grateful for life. How I'm grateful for loved ones. and And again, kind of coming back to a lot of what we're talking about is just that, that the greater calling to serve, be a part of something bigger to make a difference in our communities, to make a difference in the world around us. And, um, you know, I, I think that's the wonderful thing about it is that I don't want to just, you know, live my 85 years and have my 3.2 kids and then check out and be done. Like, I really want to be able to look back on my life and, and see that I, I did, things that were meaningful to me things that were that were important to to other people and that I I did truly make a difference in and and lived lived a life that was I don't know you know worthy of living you know in a lot of those ways so I think that's really good it's really good well
2: like you said you know we we don't choose these professions. It chooses us. And, we, and we're just naturally, said that a
0: lot.
2: Yeah. We're naturally drawn towards it. And I don't think people really think about that too often. You know, most first responders, they didn't open a job ad up one day and go, Oh, that looks like a good job. It's got good pay. It's got good benefits. I mean, this is something like, <laughs> yeah, for a yeah. lot of us at a young age, it's like, you're, you're called to it, you're drawn to it. And like I said, because of that, we're actually very good at it. And we're very successful at it. But the ironic thing is, so we're out there every day, And this is whether, it doesn't matter whether you're EMS, you're firefighter, police officer, dispatcher, we're given all kinds of advice, we're handling all kinds of conflicts, we're, you know, saving lives, we're we're taking care of other people, but why don't we take care of ourselves? Why don't we spend the time and the energy and the effort that we put in for complete strangers, the ones that we're willing to die for every single day, you know, but why won't we address our own issues? And, And this was kind of touched on, but... The number one killer of all first responders is suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've said it time and time again, but we are more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. And if you look For at law it, enforcement, that's wild to think about, yeah, yeah. And in law enforcement, if you over a career, we spend thousands of hours training firearms, defensive tactics, arrest control techniques. I mean, thousands of hours over your career on how to fight the enemy, on how to survive. But in that career. How much time do we spend on for ourselves to survive our own hands, you know, to right. be there and address our own issues and to That's ask for help we need it, you know? And you know, the thing is, we're so used to being in control and charge that we come home, we still want to pretend like we're at work and we want to bark orders and assume that if something's wrong, we can just give the solution to our spouses or our children and it's going to be fixed and we can go on with our life. But no. We need to be open right. and vulnerable at home and listen to other people and be open and not be in control. You know, that's, that's for the streets, but when you come home, drop the walls down, let the control right. go and, and work together on this stuff.
1: Yeah. It's that, that is super interesting to me. And, and like, in all of the disciplines, you know, in the first responder community and in the military of all the attention will focus on, You know, when I was in the fire service drilling and all this stuff and for like working training combatives for law enforcement, training our, you know, our medical proficiency, all those things, physical fitness. You know, I'm I'm an older dude, so I I work out quite a bit so I can provide the adequate care for the community and I'm not hurting myself. We do all those things and all those training pieces, but but training you know, I, I like to say it like that training for our own mental fitness and emotional fitness is just still a thing that for whatever reason we do not do. Yeah. You know, we're working, on
0: it. working on we're building working those on, things. Yeah.
1: We're, we're, working, we're working, on, working on, you know, it. I'm working with some guys actually to figure out a curriculum, you know, yeah. um, the company I work for is, is going to kind of be the beta for that. And just, you know, training our supervision. You, you spoke about, um, kind of betrayal from like admin betrayal and stuff like that. Literally the reason I left one agency and moved to another is because it got to the point where I was going to my, my management team and saying, listen, you have people standing on a mental health cliff. They are on a ledge getting ready to jump off it. Literally. This is not figurative language. This is you have people ready to take their own lives. And the response was you do your job. I'll do mine. Shut up and run your calls. And I was like, I, I can't be a part of this, you know? And so I moved to an agency who, the agency I work at now, I talked earlier in the uh, the show here about that doctor that, that, you know, that tried to take his own life. How it works at MMR is immediately the shift supervisor comes to where I am. I'm out of service until he des- decides that I'm OK to be in service. Um, there was two other crews from our agency at the hospital that reset the ambulance, did all those things, cleaned it up,. Cool. And everybody immediately is, "Are you okay?" and now we're talking about it?" This kind of impromptu debriefing of this, this scenario. And when it was no, I'm not. you know, I have a brand new EMT with me. This is literally her second day ever. You know, and they're like, okay, you're out of service. And that was two hours prior to when I would normally go home. And that's it. Like, it's done. We stop, you know, every single call I've ever had. And it's even stuff that would be deemed as routine. I respond to cardiac arrest, and, and that happens a lot with older people. I handle that call. I'm done with that stuff. I'm charting, doing like uh, the medical reporting supervisor comes they check in and they decide no something's not right okay you're off you're going home and then you got to come in we got to talk this out before we put you back out there that's cool you know and it's it's unheard of we definitely don't have the staffing for that you know what i mean we we really need people to be on the road covering the city running calls but but you want to keep leaders. the staff
0: that you have, right? <laughs> so it's it's essential right. to do it. You know, I am very fortunate s- to
1: work in a company where the, the safety and the health of the um, the uh, you know the operators, the providers in that company come way they're paramount. It, you know, bef- they're way more important than running calls. Awesome, and okay. it's and it's really still it's still a time. Of what I believe that is unheard of. This is a new thing, this is a new way of looking at things. I think that you know all across the disciplines it's that's just you know not something we talk about you know it's not something that's done, so I feel fortunate to be a part of the uh, agency that that's how they do their business yeah.
0: awesome
2: awesome uh, one thing I want to talk about we haven't really touched on it yet, but it is my new book
0: yeah, I uh, want to bring oh, yeah, that up too absolutely. You have, you have, I want to hear about that so how <laughs> How long has it been out now? Because it's new, new, right?
2: It is. So Relentless Courage, uh, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma is the title. And it was co-written with Dr. Shauna Springer, who is an amazing, amazing woman. She is a clinical psychologist. She's a Harvard graduate. She had written three books before this book. Okay. And she spent most her career working with combat veterans, uh, mm-hmm. with the VA, and also with the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, and then also First Responders. So she is a culturally competent therapist that truly gets it. And we actually started this book um, right at the beginning of COVID. We actually didn't even meet in person until about a year and a half into this project. And um, I kind of want to take a step back and explain it because it's kind of a cool story. Uh, But I... I'm an influencer on LinkedIn. I'm always posting things on post-traumatic stress, suicide prevention. And she just reached out to me blindly and just said, hey, I want to introduce myself and see what you're doing, and I want to let you know what I'm doing. And so we set up a phone call, and she called me, and she told me about what she does, which is she now is the um, clinical psychologist for Stella, and they train doctors across the country on stellate ganglion block, which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And so she was, yeah, and that's, and there's a lot to that. I won't go into that now, but it's in full detail in my book and I've actually had the procedure done. But when she told me this, I was was like, okay, that that sounds pretty cool. And I was listening and she asked for my story. And so I went into a great detail about my personal story and a lot of traumatic incidents that I, I talk about in this book. And she asked me during the conversation, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, well, it's funny you asked that because I had been asked that before I said, but because of post-traumatic stress, I really don't think I have the concentration, the focus, um, the patience to get something like that done. I just, I don't think I can do it. And so we left the conversation at that. A couple months later, she reaches back out and she says, look, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of trauma stories, but your story, it's sticking with me. And I think it's going to help countless people. And she said, I want to make this project happen for you. And I, at that very instant, I said, let's do it. And so... We started this process via Zoom every single week at the beginning of COVID, and it evolved into this. And what it is, is it's a very unique groundbreaking book that's different than anything else that I know of, because each chapter is split into two parts. The first part of every chapter is my story and my voice going all the way back to childhood until present day. But the second half of every chapter, Doc Springer breaks everything down, explains it, in a global way, that mm. anybody, whether you're a first responder, a veteran, cool. you know, just a family member, or just a random person on the street, you're going to truly understand it. You're going to see the human behind the badge and behind the uniform. And That's cool. yeah, this book—it's been out, I think, now close to about 30 weeks. It was a mm-hmm. bestseller for 20 straight weeks. Mm. It's already got, I think, 264 reviews on Amazon. It's only available on Amazon, but the book is saving lives, and I've heard from countless people a couple of things that are – it's the same across the board. The first thing is they couldn't put it down. They literally started reading this and cannot put the book down. The second thing was that it truly resonated with them, and not just first responders, but mothers and fathers of first responders. That's cool. Spouses, children, family members, and and this book and, – and really, I mean – I give most of the credit to Doc Springer. She is an amazing, amazing woman, but she is a gifted writer. She truly gets it. This book is an easy read. And on top of all that, I don't know if the listeners know who Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is, but he is a legend. He Mm -hmm. is a former (laughs) Army Ranger. He has been speaking for, I think, like 25 years on wellness, resiliency, combat, stress, and he actually wrote the foreword to our book. And we are so oh, honored that. that he did that. So, um, again, this book, it's saving marriages. It's saving lives. It's saving careers. It's bringing families together. Um, but I, I just, I'm a little biased, obviously. You should but be. You should be a <laughs> little be. biased. Man, that's and that's awesome. a huge
0: accomplishment. So, congratulations for Thank having you. that out. Um, well done on sharing yourself with literally the world. You know, it's I mean, the that's good,
2: the bad, the ugly. It's not I, trust me. I bared my soul in this book and it wasn't easy and it's, it's out there for the world. I, I can't control it anymore. It's off my shoulders. And, and it's like I said, there's a lot of mistakes that I made, but I point those out and we talk about the solutions. We talk about recovery. We talk about moving forward in the very back of the book. There's an entire list of vetted resources from hotlines, text lines to week long okay. retreats, you know, for first responders or vets. Just amazing, amazing programs.
0: That's awesome. It's on my order list. I'm in two other books right now, and then I'm planning <laughs> on getting that in so yes. I can read through it. So I've got a family member that might be doing um, the Detroit Police Academy. So um, I'm looking at just, I mean, I don't, I have a better window of, of understanding having been a part of the lighthouse experiment now for five years, but, um, I can always do better. I can learn more and I want to be a great support and resource to my loved ones. So I'm, I'm personally excited to be able to um, read that book and and see what you've accomplished in that book. So.
2: Awesome. And I can't wait to hear what you think. Cause I mean, like, like I said, I, I promise I guarantee you will love this book. You will not be able to put it down. That is my guarantee to everybody listening or watching this interview. Absolutely.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Right on. All right. This is a good, a good uh, spot to check out. I think, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for being a, you know, a part of this, this fight to keep, you know, first responders and veterans safe from themselves, I think is really a, a good way to look at that you know, thanks for putting yourself out there. Did you find it, was it therapeutic for you to put that out there to write and, and get that kind of what you had gone through out?
2: It was the short answer it was, but to take that a little bit farther back, how it got started was this whole trajectory was that a couple years of my recovery, I had, I had medically retired. And again, somebody reached out to me on LinkedIn. He was a former police officer. He ran a podcast. He asked me to be on his show. It was the very first podcast I did. It was back in 2019. I think I've been on like 50 something podcasts now. I didn't want to do it. He harassed me. I mean, he's like, you know, I'm like, no, no. And he kept bothering me. And he finally, he's like, look, I will drive the two and a half hours to you. You name the spot, it will take an hour. (laughs) And um, I did, I met him. And this is where the healing and power came in is that when he aired that, when he shared it, I started getting messages from all over the world, Canada, Australia, the uk the united states from people who started sharing their stories and talking about how what i said resonated with them and that's the key is that i'm not special and i'm not unique and what i learned was that you know i wasn't alone yeah there were resources mm-hmm. there were people that got it that understood it and that's where the healing comes from is that i had kept this inside for over four years literally suffering in silence but once i let it out there that's where the healing it was this burden came off my shoulders and so now every time I do an interview, obviously the book a little bit more of that burden just keeps coming off and off cool that's really so, cool well understand.
0: I'll share I'll share the link to Amazon for the book on our podcast information and then um do you want us to share like the link to your LinkedIn or what other link for you would you like me to share?
2: Absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. People can just look up my, my name, Michael Sugru, but I also run a couple pages on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll share
0: those. Yeah. That's how I found you. So that was pretty cool. I appreciated you responding. I'm like, no, it's, this is awesome. I mean, exactly what we're saying right now. It's encouraging for us to be able to hang out with you. Um, it's exciting. It's wonderful. And then just the impact that our community gains by having right. had hung out for an hour and having this conversation with you. So this is this is just really cool for us. So
2: No, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, as usual, thank you to Freedom Center Church and Kingdom Builders for your love and support. And for our listeners, thanks for listening. Remember, get help before you need help. If you need it, dial or text nine eight eight. And thank you to our guest, Michael Sugru. Thanks again. We appreciate you.
2: Thank you.